Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I'm delighted to be joined by the university's head of visas, immigration support and advice to talk about how his work is helping hundreds of students around the world. Peter Yetton, thank you very much for joining me on today's show. It's a pleasure, Craig. Peter, I suppose the best place to start is by introducing yourself. Tell us about your role within the university. Hi, yes, sir. So my name is Pete Yetton. When I first came in, I was a compliance officer. And then after two years, we decided to restructure the International Student Support Services team into a visa unit. And that's in order for us to stretch beyond student interaction and more into staff um, interaction. Okay. So I currently run the visa team and it's myself, there is a senior registry officer who also deals with compliance and I've got th- two advisors with one more advisor coming on board in the next two or three months. And uh, we cover a number of student issues with regards to their immigration and their visa journey and it's not only at the start of their journey for advice to get across the border, we're also part of their student journey throughout their time at the university and we'll deal with their dependent visas which are their families and their Mm -hmm. children and any other um, visiting visas for their family for graduation will will help with that and we also deal with some quite complex cases so the world is Mm ever-changing and it's becoming far more complex as we can see with Brexit and various other bits and pieces the student journey hasn't become any easier for them so what we see now is with the instability of some of the countries around the world, it does lead for an increase in students who are trying to deal with not only studying in a foreign country, but also some of the problems that they have with anything from feeing issues because their country could be in a state of civil war or change of governments to anything from family members who are unwell that are like thousands of miles away. So we come up with a number of solutions in order to try and help them finish their study. Even though the, the visa team is split into two halves, which is advising, which is all advisory for staff and, and students, there's also a compliance side, which looks after the license. So without boring you with the legal <laughs> terminology of all this, in order for any university to have international students, you need to maintain what's called a tier four license. Okay. And it's set by the home office and there are certain restrictions that we have to adhere to in order for us to get our license renewed every year. It gets renewed on my birthday on the 19th of September, so I don't know whether I always look forward to that or not, um, but we haven't failed yet touch wood in seven years. So what they'll look at over the previous year is they'll look at three stats for students. Uh, they'll look at our visa refusal rate, and that is based on how many students we have in, in any one year, how many of those students didn't make it across the border. And that benchmark is, is set at 10%. So in order to get an international student across the UKVI visa uh, threshold, they need to be given a CAS, which is a confirmation of acceptance of studies by university. For us to maintain part of that uh, visa refusal, um, 10% is we can't have any more than 10% of students that applied to us in any one year to be refused. So a thousand students, we can't have more than a hundred which good, are good enough. <laughs> thanks then I'm back with, with, uh, with words and I'm with numbers um, so that's one stat uh, we currently have a very very low refusal rate because we work very closely with admissions teams and recruitment teams and with the agent network in foreign countries in order to help the student prepare the other statistic is our completion rate which effectively is 
The CAS will have a length of time for the course, which should be a master's is one year or 15, 16 months, and then you've got a four-year undergrad. If they finish at any point before that course, um, then that's counted against us. The negative side of that statistic, which doesn't really reflect students' wishes in this, day, in this modern, modern day and age, many students won't opt to do an honours year. For international students, honours might not mean that much to them. What it means for the university is they'll effectively leave with a, um, an ordinary degree, but then the, un- or the home office will count that against the university okay. as a non-completion, even though they have completed a stage. That doesn't seem to make much sense. If you have completed the best part of it, then why, it, it, why it is the home office not count that? Well, it, it's, easy for them to, to, it's easy for them to use institutions to police the immigration of international students. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And we are in a very effective vehicle for the home office in order to maintain safety to the borders because it's on our shoulders in order for us to know that a student can that a student we give a CAS to starts then we need to maintain their attendance mm-hmm. and monitoring which isn't specific to national students that's to all students actually domestic as well so we don't have anything which is any different for international student at GCU all the attendance is effectively the same as a domestic student UK Scottish or, or um, um, EU and the reason for that is just for fairness. So if they fall foul, though, of not meeting certain contact points, then we need to then report that uh, with the Home Office if we end up then withdrawing out their course, mm-hmm. off their course. So it is unfair because students can change their decision at any one time during their journey, and that's quite normal for someone to start a course and then actually yeah, yeah. Quite, quite like something else mm-hmm. and then want to shift into something else after sort of one or two years, leave with a certificate or a diploma. So it really is quite restrictive. The final statistic that we um, hold to is our enrollment rate. And that has to be above 90, 95%. So basically what that tells the Home Office is the visas, the CASs that we've given a student to in order for them to get a visa, when they've been given their visa and they cross the border into the UK, that they have registered with us and therefore that now becomes a genuine student in the eyes of the Home Office. As far as we're concerned, every student we give a CAS to is a genuine mm-hmm. student and we have to get them across across the border in order to, the, to get to the university. The big challenge Visa has and compliance units across the sector is the Home Office will pick and choose what they will see as a high-risk country and a low-risk country. What's an example of a high-risk country? So a high-risk country, really, it's not set by us. It's set by a number of things. It's One, it's the Home Office's perspective of that country based on internal conflict, based on global terrorism. It's been a big one the last sort of 18 years. Uh, it could also be a civil war. A number of things can happen. Yeah. Where there is civilians can be displaced from a given area, that could rise into people applying for student visas, and then when they get here, effectively are coming to the UK to then claim asylum. Okay, now uh, there's a lot of empathy across the board with anyone in EU who is displaced, but the Home Office need to make sure that if they're coming in, they're coming in to study, and then they're going to be either staying here for other reasons or then exiting. A low risk is something a country which is quite closely linked to the UK, so Canada, America. Um, some of our Commonwealth countries, mm-hmm. and it's areas where there's never been much that that's gone wrong with that country to then cause the Home Office a concern. The paranoia is all centred on threat to the border, unfortunately. Okay, and that comes from the Home Office, not from us. We actively recruit from high-risk countries 
because we are a university of the common good and we give families and people and generations a chance where that where they couldn't possibly get elsewhere and I personally take great pride in the fact that we are ranked where we are and we're getting better all, all the time but we do give people this opportunity where they wouldn't normally get this level of service and experience they get out of a modern is somewhat different from a Russell group as well and I think it's catered to mature students and it's catered to the international area as well because our support system is different. Mm-hmm. So uh, that in itself is a is a good indicator of why we probably have a higher percentage of high-risk students. The other problem that and the challenge that we have in Scotland is that the Scottish government um, is closely aligned internationally and strategically with Pakistan. And Pakistan has historically always had some internal problems, um, either politically, and in the last 18 years we've seen a significant rise in some of the things that happen internally with bombings, explosions, and all sorts. It's quite a reactive country uh, now and again, politically. But because we are aligned to them in Scotland, uh, we have a huge history of student activity, businesses in Scotland, and our students from the from, from Pakistan and from other high-risk areas are fantastic students because they come in, they complete, have a great journey. So. Our perception of risk is nothing like the Home Office perception of risk. So when we're assessing students for their genuine, genuineness, um, which is a test which is set by the Home Office, and that's based on the questions that they have to answer um, about why they're coming to GCU, we know that they're genuine students. It's very rare for anyone these days to want to go through the amount of hurdles and hoops that you have to go through in order for them to come into the UK, pretend to be a student, and then effectively disappear. <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore. Okay, so um, the rules are that are that type. You've kind of touched on it there, Peter. But how important are overseas students to this university? Just putting international students to one side, but looking at the need for this this world to become more internationalized. That that goes into the core of your empathy and where your compassion lies, and and it dilutes ignorance to nothing. So if you understand far more about the challenges and you want to learn about other cultures, you're instantly not going to have these preset ideas that might be put in your head by either really strange political heads or um, skewed media. So the importance for for this institution, any institution, first and foremost, I don't know about you, but I want to go somewhere where I can see far more people from different areas that don't look like me, speak like me, or sound like me. I, I want to meet people from other areas. If you're a Scottish student or um, from England or from the UK and you come to Scotland, you don't want to sit in a classroom environment or mix with people from the same area. You've had that all your life. You want to learn about different things. You want to embrace different religions and cultures and start to expand. The internationalization of a university is fundamental to how the university grows and fundamental to the local community as well around that university. And because we're the common good and we do so much outreach work, having international students as part of this is helping shape Glasgow as well. And if you look at Glasgow, Glasgow 20 years ago is nothing like Glasgow now. Mm -hmm. And to have a city where even when there was an influx of refugee work and asylum work and they were placed in, in really quite poor areas in Glasgow, the expectation was that's going to cause a lot of conflict, and it didn't, because the community feel and that whole mindset within Glasgow of giving people a chance, and they've always been up against it at one time or another in in in, in history. And uh, I can't help being English, but yeah, we're so embarrassed not to sit here actually. But yeah, but but that feeling though really really plays into the strengths of international experience while they're here. It's 
so for the university, from an experience point of view, which I put that before anything else, it's so important so we can learn about different areas. The second part of it financially is so important for a uni. Some unis are quite heavily reliant on um, funding um, council, which is uh, from, from the government. We're in quite difficult times right now. We don't know what's going to happen post-Brexit. Mm. Um, that's certainly putting a strain on our ability um, or, or the money that the government wants to give in, in, in institutions. And the Scottish government obviously really actively supports uh, this um, the, these areas. We're never going to be as buoyant as Russell Group universities who have a huge history of um, international students coming in because they're highly ranked and yeah. some international markets chase highly ranked unis. But we need to shift the demographics, or modern modern universities do, to make sure that our income is equally shared out between Scottish funding, international fee income, research funding, and then, and then other other grants. If you're too heavily reliant on one area, and then you then due to the global economy right now, what's happening, especially in the UK, the money is going to obviously going is be will be reducing without having more international students coming in. You're effectively going to be constraining the ability for that university to achieve all the things that they need to achieve. And GCU, we punch high, you know we do, Craig. And our ambition is is massive. And it's not out of reach, but our dreams are big and we, and we do achieve them, like GCNYC and, yeah. and London. And that's important. And the international student market and the body here is a fundamental part of that planning process. And we, we need to get it far more internationalised for Glasgow because London's pretty pretty high up it's like mm-hmm. 70 or 80 yeah. percent international but we need to obviously shift the shift that for, for for glasgow and get more and more people coming in so we'll talk about the process of applying to join gcu for instance mm-hmm. imagine i'm a, a bangladeshi student who wants to study podiatry at the university what's the process for me saying yes i want to go to gcu to pitching up on the first day for my first lecture there are certainly two routes uh, that a student can take. They can either do that by themselves and help with their family and friends, and they'll identify universities. And if you look at that one first, and this sometimes students can fall foul of the, of the home office in this regard, right? So the power of referral in any industry is massive. And if a friend said something like TripAdvisor, I don't go away without looking at TripAdvisor, right? So I base my entire life on reviews and everything. I, I think I've, I've lost my ability to have my own thought process. But <laughs> with international market... Students will choose unis and countries where maybe the family have gone before, right. mums, dads, cousins, brothers, because they know it's a good experience. They'll also go to areas that are quite safe as well and safer. So Glasgow is certainly seen as a safer city than London um, at times from certain markets. They look at things like pollution levels. That's quite that's quite a, that features quite heavily within the in the, in the Chinese market where they in some of the densely populated cities there is a, an, air, an mm-hmm. air pollution problem. So all these things will then make that or lean that student to a certain area. So let's take let's say that person has been led in Bangladesh by their family. They'll then look at all the different universities that do their course, that offer their course, and then they'll go into a, a, quite a simple procedure of applying for that course, and they'll go through the admissions process. And then admissions will then look at their eligibility for their course based on their qualifications and they'll be sending in effectively copies of their qualifications mm-hmm. they'll send in a personal statement also known as a statement of purpose and that statement is effectively the student's pitch in order to make the university realise how important it is that they study at that university and I, I, I cannot I cannot stress enough how important that part is 
in a, in a, in a, in a student journey. It not only allows the admissions officer to assess the application a lot easier because a lot of the questions are answered in a really good statement. Mm-hmm. And it's things like, why the UK? What's great about GCU? It'll mention about the modules of the course. It should go into... Um, so the prospective student will really have had to done their research before oh yeah. they apply for this. Absolutely, absolutely. And some students don't. And some students can choose a number of universities and they can choose a number of courses in that one in that in that one uni. But when when they're focused and they can it allows the admissions to make make the offer a lot quicker. Okay. So the idea really is for the student to get to that stage, choose which course they want, then Sometimes it might have it might get referred to an academic. They might, depending on what level they're at, the academic level, they can speak to uh, an academic and have some feedback. And then they go through. If they're accepted, they'll get an unconditional offer, and then they'll go through the process of their visa. So if they go through the visa process at that stage, I think uh, we did a, a video together a wheel while back, Craig, where we looked at the credibility interview process. Mm-hmm. So they'll get they'll look at that, and then they'll realize that they might get interviewed by the Home Office. And that interview, that came in about 2015, and the Home Office brought that in, in order for, for them to be happy that the students who are coming through were genuine students. It's a very subjective interview, which is on a, on a Skype, mm-hmm. effectively, um, and the questions are all quite pre-laid out and, and, and preset. If they pass that, though, they'll then go for their, they'll have their visa granted, and then they'll enter the UK a month before they close. Is that the best way to interview prospective students using that Skype process? I, I personally don't think so, no. Um, I think it can be quite a scary process for some students. They're not used to, they're not used to being in front of a, of a camera. Um, there could be language difficulties at times. And the Home Office or the, the, the UK VI, which are the body that look after the tier four visas and, and, and other visas, um, it's someone who sits in Sheffield, right, in a call centre, effectively. Um, they have to make a subjective decision based on not only the answers, but also maybe that person's English ability. Uh, I've been in the area for the international arena since 2008, I think, and I couldn't tell you whether someone was sitting at an IELTS 7 or an IELTS 6, really. It's a, it's a fine test that you need to do, but a decision can be made on someone based on something as simple as that. So you've got the difficulty from the student, it's, it's quite difficult for them to maybe engage through a mm-hmm. camera which is a, and, and the connection could be poor. So look at areas where they have connectivity problems like Nigeria, Pakistan, India. It's not going to be that, that clear and you can drop off. Then you've got language difficulties. Sheffield have got their own distinct like, uh, <laughs> twang. Twang, yeah. <laughs> and, and depending on, on how strong their accent is, that could cause uh, a problem for the, for the, for the um, student. The good thing is, though, that they're not in, in, not in uniform. And some of them won't always get interviewed via Skype. They might have an interview at, at um, a, a consulate or a, a visa inquiries, uh, a VAC um, inquiry centre, and then, then they'll just be granted. If there's anything in their back in their history or the immigration history that the, that, that first decision maker is not happy with, then they could be interviewed straight away. Some countries, though, will always get interviewed based on their risk, mm-hmm. which is what we, we spoke about earlier. So the second route then is through the agent network, which some countries have a very active agent network and some don't. Look at the, if they look at the European market, they don't really have an, an agent network. Look at the Middle East and uh, China and Pakistan and India, they, they, they do. So the agent, the way that that interaction will work is the agent will effectively be 
will have a contract with a number of institutions. Right? Okay. So they're not linked to any one uni. And their job ostensibly is to meet with their client, which is our potential student. And then they will then try and work out the best university and best course for that student. And it might be us, it might be someone else. When, if it is us, then they'll, the agent then will effectively manage that application through the admissions process and be the point of contact at the point, to the point of, of getting their, their visa. They'll then enter the, the university and the agent will maintain that relationship okay. with, with the student. So how does your team help with this process? Well, there's a number of, if you look at the, uh, the new student coming in, uh, we are quite heavily involved with supporting admissions and supporting international recruitment in the agent area. And that's really just through either awareness of what's happening right now with visa refusals in order for us to react really, really quickly. If the complex cases will really come to visa, like admissions officers are are very um, knowledgeable and have experience to make decisions on on the majority of the decisions on on the cases. But there'll be some that will be quite complex with previous visa refusals or they've had a they've been working for a long period of time in between periods of study. Right, okay. And it'll come to us to then have a look at it We'll then interview or do like a, it's called a, a visa guidance appointment. So it's not really a mock interview, but we're assessing these students in order for them to be successful with the, with the home office. Once we're happy that the student is really well prepared, the admissions will then go back into into that case and effectively we'll take them through to the next stage, which is giving them their cans. So what are some of the common challenges that you face during this process? There's a couple of common challenges I think is just, we work with different levels of students. And I think the first challenge that I personally see is postgraduate students from high-risk countries who get interviewed, they don't really say that much during the interview. And I can understand that because if you've been working for years and you go for a job, Craig, right now, if someone's asking you a really basic question, there'll be something in the back of your brain very quickly of saying, so why are you asking me that? You must know this. And that's sometimes what happens. So they'll get refused okay. on the on the basis of, of, of what they're not saying. So some of their transcripts will be really, really thin. And it's because the Home Office also say to them at the start of the, of the interview, I'm writing this entire interview down verbatim. Can you make your answers clipped and to the point? Now, if you're someone who is, gets asked, asked a very closed question, you'll answer that in one sentence mm-hmm. and you won't elaborate. And that's different to undergrad students. Right, okay, that's, that seems, that can be, I imagine that can be quite confusing then for some students that are trying to apply and you've got conflicting advice. It, it is, um, and we, we are quite open and across the, the sector with all the students who are going to get interviewed. And we do say to them, the Home Office will ask you to give a, a succinct, clipped answer. My advice to you is, it's your opportunity to explain exactly why you want this course, this university, and why it's important for your career. Um, so, so with respect to them, don't listen to too much what they say <laughs> to you by making your answers clipped. You need to answer fully. And the other reason we say that to them is the Home Office got rid of the appeal process for institutions to appeal visa refusals that they made a decision on. And it's not the visa ref- is owned by the, the applicant, but we used to help them quite a lot. What they did then, they changed it and they changed the appeal process to what's called an administrative review, an AR. And all that allows us to do is we need to look at the information that was in front of that decision maker. Did they make the correct decision based on the information that they had in front of them? So if we have a situation where a student is asked a question and he answers it in one sentence, 
and then at the end of it they get refused on the grounds of not giving enough detail I can't review that because they haven't made an incorrect decision based on the answers that they gave does that make sense yeah whereas if they give a full answer and they still make a decision saying I don't think you're genuine I can then go back and say right the student answered this in some detail how have you got to the decision of not being genuine when they've mentioned the modules the assessment methods how it's going to affect their career so we we do say to them say loads are there any memorable cases you've worked on I'd say quite a lot of them are memorable <laughs> because they, they take us off into, uh, into different areas. I'd say one that always sticks out with me uh, was a, a London student who uh, had applied to do a master's and she was from Ghana. And the application, what she'd submitted was really quite complex. There was loads of different issues with it from a home office point of view. Academically, she was on point mm-hmm. and she was fantastic. But what you sometimes get in some countries, not just Africa, is Dates of birth will be things like if if they're from like a tiny little village, they might be been registered four years down the line, and it'll be registered as the date of birth the first of the first nineteen eighty or something, right? Okay. So they won't necessarily have any paperwork from that. When they do, then get paperwork collected or drafted out to then get a visa. They could have five or six different names, of which then all different family names that could be in various different orders so when it comes through to you assessing this and the home office assess things based on pure accuracy against the passport you could then have a number of different issues with no birth certificate but then there's a court document which says she was born on this person was born on such and such a date then you have to make sure the court document is stamped a certain way because they don't like that if it's not stamped a certain way is it because that court is from a different regional area so there's Number of things, right? So <laughs> this is why I have no hair, Craig, right? And I, I don't sleep at night. So um, so from this case, though, there was five distinct difficulties that we had, we had with it. But we felt the student needed the opportunity to apply for this course because it was fundamental to her career path, right? So we spent two or three months with, uh, with one of the guys down in London to make sure that everything that we'd, we knew was going to be a problem had been fixed. The good news was we got, her, we got her across the border. She then finished with, with amazing results and had the best experience ever. And she will stick with me, I think, for quite a while because it was anyone else, I think, would have looked at it and gone, Look, there's no way we can do this. There's too many things. There's too many risks here. But we didn't. We looked at each one. We crossed each risk off and then we reassessed it. And we always knew, as all of our students who applied to us, they're genuine. We went to give them a chance. Uh, and it's a case of just... Well, like I say with the Home Office, right, and, and these complex cases, and I say, I've said this a number of times in, in different awareness sessions, in order to get the answer that you want from the Home Office, imagine a corridor with loads of doors on left and right, and they're all open, and one that you want the student to go down, and the one that you want the Home Office to go down is one at the end. And to get them to that point of visa, you walk down the corridor with the student, and you close all the doors that they could potentially go down, and the home officer right behind you wanting you to go left or right. And then the end door is the door which only has one answer, which is the visa is going to be successful. So that's how we approach complex cases. must be quite satisfying, though, to see that uh, when you've put all that hard work into it, you get the result you're looking for. Huge. Yeah, massive. And I'd say that it's the driver for, for the visa department and the way that we've, we've moved and shifted in the last four years is that we have got the ability to not only protect the licence of the university, which is fundamental to what we do, and if you ever lost the licence, it would be catastrophic, not just the international student market, it would also affect your mm-hmm. domestic student, yeah. and the reputational damage would be terrible. So 
we're not only confident that we've got that bit sorted, but the other part is the duty of care of getting those students across using the law correctly. You just see a number of, of really good cases that you end up winning. I'd say probably the downside to it, looking at how many people are involved in that process, that we're at the sharp end, right, and we see all the end result sometimes, and we get like the hugs and the nice cards and the comments. But I'm very aware as a head of Visa that there are a number of people who've been part of that process, mm-hmm. albeit from the school, admissions, recruitment, everyone's had a touch point. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always get fed back like face-to-face. They don't always see... Uh, so that's bit I'm really working on the next two years is to try and really work on the value of someone's journey here and how that relates to the bit that we see mm-hmm. at the end. There have been a lot of changes since you've been working for the university, Peter. Do you think other institutions can learn from some of the changes that you've brought in? Yeah, I, th- I think so, yeah. Um, I've certainly been really active in the sector since I have came to GCU in 2013. I'd like to say that I have put GCU on the map in a positive way with the Home Office and how we interact with them. We have a very authentic, transparent and trusted relationship with them. We had a very successful Home Office audit in 2017, which we got one of the best results that that the Home Office had seen in the actual sector. And that's a massive step for us because we're a modern university and we're often seen, not just this university, but modern universities are seen as higher risk at, at, at times. So I have been really active in many different sort of speaker circuits and supporting the varying lobbying groups and giving talks and presentations out. And it has, I know it has made a difference to how some of the other, other institutions have restructured themselves, where they've made compliance into a central function, but crossing every element of the student journey. So my team, through different reasons, will have interactions and seats on different committees and different groups in order to always be there with the answer of okay let's think about this bit this is a problem how do we get them to the end of their journey because the visa might constrain them so uh, as long as any visa unit or any sort of compliance unit constantly has well well in in a, in a university constantly has the the thought process of immigration and compliance is, has to be subservient to the academic journey always. And the student's acad- academic path is the most important thing on this. And when it comes to things like assessment boards, when it comes to other problems that a student might have, visa really shouldn't play a part in that. They need to be assessed on their academic ability as a student. And that's the bit that we do, I think, behind the scenes. Mm. We do a lot of uh, meeting with academic and a student and compliance if there's a problem about progression and we work out a plan so not only the university is protected by what we might put in place for the student the student could have maybe a short period of time to maybe resolve an issue and then the academic is similarly also happy that the student can re-engage on the course and not be disadvantaged Mm -hmm. so part of the, the big success i think not only the restructure but i think the way we interact with the university partners here academic staff and other support groups has meant there's been a lot of success stories come out of that. Now, it's been mentioned a couple of times during this podcast, Peter, uh, Brexit. This is the thing that's uh, casting a shadow pretty much over everything we're doing here. Um, How big an impact is Brexit having on your role? Huge, really. I think when you look at immigration law, this is probably the biggest shift and turbulent period we've had in about 60 years. So it's great if you're an immigration lawyer out there and you have your own firm, you can certainly 
understand where where where, where the development <laughs> opportunities are when you're when you're uh, uh, when you're head of compliance from a legal platform you've got to look at something that one we can't escape it it's here and it's going to happen so the, the next thing is is how do we use this to our advantage mm-hmm. there is lots of negatives that have been said about brexit okay and it's more to do uh, personally about where you sit on that fence and whether you agree democratically or not of having a separate second referendum, whether you feel European or not, whatever happened to me has happened. But the positives for Brexit is the UK have been so linked in to Europe for 40 odd years. They know that they can't just rip this organ out. And if they did, we will have a huge exodus of talent, skills and experience. What that has done to this government is allowed them to look at the economy and how much what international students mean to the economy and also how much international workers mean to the economy. What that then led to them doing is they released the white immigration paper in December of 2018 and that was really an outline of how they wanted to see the UK looking post-Brexit. And I have to say there were some concerns in that. There were also massive opportunities. So the opportunities really is there is that there is some relaxation with regards to tier two, which is if you're a tier two worker, you're an international person, not in Europe, and you need to find a sponsor, like a business like Barclays or, or even here, and they will sponsor you under the tier two visa. Okay, so that's being relaxed somewhat. So the checks are lessened. So they have a thing called a, a, a resident labor market test. And the test really for that is an employer has to prove why they need this person from say, Tanzania as opposed to someone from say Wales okay or Easter House whatever right so that's getting relaxed which means that there's going to be more international people applying for jobs hopefully they've also relaxed the qualification levels for some of the jobs so there are lower skilled jobs available for people to come in they've made some tweaks with regards to they've brought in a uh, a tier one startup visa which replaced the graduate entrepreneur visa so what that's saying really to the market is you can come in for two years and you can start a business up. You don't need 50,000, 200,000 pounds and we'll help you create this business. So we are really active this university with tier one. I launched the graduate entrepreneur program four years ago and now that's been replaced by the startup. And we have a number of international businesses now in the incubation stage that are working through UHatch, uh, which is a phenomenal uh, area of, of this uni, really, really proactive. And that is shaping the future of international entrepreneurs. So the bigger picture, for Brexit is, they're looking at this social enterprise bit. They've also then brought in a, um, a tier one innovation visa, which allows the students to stay here for another three years and then apply for settlement, which means that they really want people to stay here and create businesses that are in Britain that are then multinational, so they're gonna cross over. So there are definite opportunities here. One of the things that's gonna come in post-Brexit is the reintroduction of the post-study work visa. What are your thoughts on that? It's been a fantastic move, and it was a shock actually when when the Prime Minister released this um, a, a couple of months ago. It's something that has been challenged by the sector really, really forcefully, I'd say, in the last six years. The post-study work visa used to be around years ago, but it was dropped because the thought process was that it was getting abused by, one, employers, and also people who are highly skilled taking lower paid jobs. So effectively you have people coming out of unis with master's degrees and all sorts who are effectively taking jobs in call centers. And, okay. it, and, and it wasn't really, it wasn't probably the best thing for them to do, but financially for that international student, that's 
good revenue, good money. It didn't necessarily help the economy though uh, grow. So then, then they cut it off. They literally cut it off very quickly. And we lost about 25% of our international market. With a reintroduction of this, which is going to go live in summer of 2021, which means that students coming into trimester A of 2020, so that's September of 2020, will benefit from this post-study work visa, which means when they finish their studies, they're going to be given an automatic two-year visa to find work, do whatever they want to here, I mean, okay. benefit the economy and internationalise communities. So that is a massive win, I'd say, for Brexit. Just listening to you, Peter, you, you sound very passionate about what you do. Is, yeah. is that sort of stuff essential for, for your role? Yeah, it is. I think anyone who works in international, you've, you've really got to care. Um, I wouldn't say it's any different from anything else, really, but you've really got to care about what you do in order to allow you to look at the bigger picture and find all the, all the cracks, seal the cracks over, and you've got to take a continual interest. With this, though, the area of work that I'm in, it does mean a huge amount of reading, but also, I wouldn't say law so much, because hopefully we know the law by now, it's reading about opinions, about how people are gonna react, because this whole area is based on, on how society feels, immigration law will change and lean, based on governments that are in power. So staying ahead of the curve is so important, and it's. I wouldn't say it's onerous, it's exhausting, but it's a, it's a happy, exhausting feeling that you get <laughs> um, because you know that you're adding some value. And I think you've got, to, you've got to have that as your driver. You're not going to win everything. There are going to be some cases that are going to rip you apart that you haven't been able to win, but then you hold on to the ones that you have won. And there are a couple that I've had for a number of years now, when I was a lawyer even, that are incredibly good friends of mine who are clients of mine. And it, it was a very difficult journey you hold on to the bit that you've played a tiny part in someone else's journey and you don't want any accolade for it but you just feel really good that, you're, <laughs> that your name is somewhere on someone else's sort of chapter which feels quite good Peter that's been absolutely fantastic talking to you thank you very much for your time it's a pleasure Craig thank you I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you join us again soon we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University until then I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast